Welcome to the Redefined Life podcast. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Jack DeRose, who is the founder of Colony. Um, Jack, thank you for being here. I'll start out. Um, why don't you just explain what Colony is? Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me, first of all. It's a pleasure to be on the on the podcast. Um, yeah, so Colony is a platform for DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, and we are intending for it to be the most powerful, practical, flexible, and easy-to-use uh, platform for DAOs. Um, our goal is to make it possible for people all over the world to form organizations together online. So basically to allow communities to form, raise money, collectively manage funds, and coordinate, an acti coordinate their activity towards a common goal without needing to know or trust one another. So how much uh, coding is required for somebody to spin up a DAO using Colony? Absolutely none. So it takes about three minutes and it's totally zero code. You don't have to be technical at all. That's, that's been really key to, to everything that we've wanted to do with Colony is that it should be basically as easy a user experience as a, a, an ordinary Web2 app would be. So if you're comfortable using something like Asana or Jira, perhaps, although I don't think it's anywhere near as complicated as Jira, um, you should be comfortable using Colony once you've got through like understanding that you need to use MetaMask. Basically, that's the main difference. You have to pay, you have to um, send transactions when you do stuff because everything's on chain. Huh. So is it's the it's the infrastructure for the compensation and the voting and governance as well. All that stuff, exactly. So the basis upon which you earn your influence within an organization and how decisions take place. Um, voting is just one modality that we cover. And actually, we try to avoid voting wherever possible because, as everybody listening will know from the organizations that they work in, voting is not something that happens. Um, it's not a scalable or practical way to run most organizations. So, so at Colony, we believe that that should really be a measure of last resort. So how is consensus uh, derived or how are decisions made um, through this? So that's, that's the interesting thing, actually, even in current DAOs that are out there that people are using. If you speak to people, you find that actually consensus formation takes place off chain. It's happening in video calls and conversations and all of the normal things that you would expect to be happening in a team. And then you have this process after people have already decided what is going to happen uh, of actually ratifying that on chain. And then you have to chase uh, everybody to come and participate in that vote, which is a really sort of annoying and inefficient way of doing things. So in Colony, we, we really lean into that um, reality that, that consensus formation takes place off chain. And uh, we assume that that's happened already and people can um, make what we call a motion, which is another word for a proposal, of something that they think should happen, such as you know, pay Bob um, $100. And as long as nobody objects to that proposal to pay Bob um, within a security window that's available, which is definable by the colony of, let's say, three days, um, as long as nobody objects to it in that time period, then the motion will just pass and Bob will be able to claim his $100. So it's more of like a, a veto opportunity rather than a ratification through through a voting process. That's exactly correct. It's sort of 
default, everybody's voting yes, unless somebody decides to vote no. Hmm. Interesting. Um, are there any other aspects of of Colony's framework that um, are significantly different from what appears to be kind of the common consensus of how DAOs operate currently? Yeah, there's so most of the DAOs really emphasize token weighted voting. Um, and, and tokens being the basis for influence within an organization has a few problems. One is that it doesn't allow any differentiation between the people in the organization. And so if you can't really differentiate between people on the basis of who they are or what they should be um, making decisions on, then you really can't differentiate between the things that are to be voted on. So you just end up with one big long list of all of the proposals that could be made. Again, that's that's not how it works in actual organizations. It's because it's not scalable. You can't just have one enormous team um, that, that decides together on everything. So rather in Colony, it's broken down into departments or teams, what we call domains. Um, and those can be about anything. They can be project-based teams, they can be really whatever organizational modality makes sense to the kind of organization that, that it is. And when you get paid in a colony's native token in that um, team, um, you earn reputation in that team. And that gives you influence within that team. So let's say you've got an organization which is constructed of what we call the root, which represents sort of I suppose, akin to board-level decisions, things that matter to the organization as a whole rather than any particular department within it. But then below that, let's say you've got three teams. You've got design, marketing, and engineering. If you've earned reputation in design by getting paid for work in design, you're going to have influence in design and the organization overall. But you're not going to have influence in engineering or marketing because you haven't demonstrated any competence in those if you were to demonstrate competence in those and get by getting paid in them then you would have influence in them um, and so that sort of being able to um, compose an organization of multiple different teams is you know just how organizations work and it allows us to um, make an organization much more scalable by dividing concerns just as organizations actually do Hmm. So with this reputation, um, does that, how does that uh, fit with, you know, the fact that these, I guess, um, it's veto rather than, than voting consensus? Because you, it's, it's all weighted by reputation. So everything requires a stake. We, we do still use tokens, but they're used primarily for staking, sort of to back your to put your money where your mouth is, effectively. Um, so you create a motion of something that you would like to happen, and you stake it with your tokens in that colony. And the amount that you can stake it is a function of how high your reputation is. So if you've demonstrated a lot of um, engagement with the organization, you're going to have higher reputation and therefore higher ability to stake things. So it could be that you can just get things staked all by yourself. Whereas if you're newer, 
it's less likely you'll be able to do so. So you have to get more people to participate in it. I see. And then when a vote does take place, it's weighted by reputation. Gotcha. Okay. Um, how long does reputation last? Because one of the things when I've, I've kind of been paying attention to several different um, projects talking about uh, incorporating some measure of reputation in their projects. And, um, you know, one of the concerns that I've seen brought up by others is, you know, if, if this on-chain reputation lasts forever, then there's no way for, let's say somebody's new and they, they want to get involved and they, you know, make a naive misjudgment or something like that, that impacts their reputation. Is that going to something that's going to stick with them forever? Or is that something that, um, will eventually diminish in, in, uh, in importance in their, in their history effectively? Yeah, great question. So, I th- yeah, I, actually, this the, the topic that you're bringing up is is something that's concerned me for a while. This notion of the blockchain never forgets, um, and in society, we've we've taken the view that you should be able to be, you should be able to um, sort of move on past past indiscretions. Um, in colony, reputa- I mean. Reputation is just a, a number of points, so it's not like it can really capture any um, any specifics uh, around the behavior. If, uh, aside from the fact that that will always be available on chain, so somebody could go back in principle and audit all of that stuff if they really felt that they needed to. But actually, reputation has um, a, a quality of decay. So it decays over time with a with a half life of three months, and that actually solves a slightly different problem than than the one you're bringing up, which is that it it sort of continually reaffirms the decentralization of the organization um, by juxtaposition to to how token weighted governance works is probably the best way to explain it, which is that when you are, are voting on things weighted by tokens, the token holding, the largest token holders of, of any token really are the people who were there earliest, namely the founding team and the earliest, wealthiest investors. And that doesn't really tend to change very much over time. The long tail of token holdings tends to get longer, but the sort of, the, the, the big token holders don't really change very much. So the reality of token weighted governance is that it's a handful of people who are practically in control and a large number of people who find it very hard to coordinate uh, who have comparatively little um, influence. Um, Reputation decay changes that. It prevents this sort of aristocracy of influence that emerges in token weighted voting by causing um, the amount of influence everybody has to continuously renormalize to represent the uh, recent contributions of of everybody in the community. So it's yeah, it's it's um, a real credit for for effort and involvement rather than just being the the richest guy in the room. Exactly correct. Mm, yes, and that much more um, faithfully represents how organizations actually work as well. You know, ordinary companies, because if we think of a startup the people who are around at the beginning of a startup are not necessarily the best people the startup will ever attract. They're just the people who happen to be around to begin with. Um, usually um, startups are able to attract 
higher caliber people the longer they go because they are have a higher profile, they have got more money, it's more attractive to go and join them. And uh, I think decentralized organizations need to be able to make benefit of, of the same principles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was recently having a conversation with somebody who was relatively new and they were bringing up the concern, um, whether it was insightful or naive, uh, you know, is part of my, my... Often they can be the same. Yeah, previous question. Um, um, but, uh, you know, they were like, well, why, why doesn't a traditional finance company just come in, buy up a bunch of uh, index or, or some other token that's a governance token and, you know, for a project that they might see as a competitor and, you know, completely either break the protocol or, you know, just wrap them into their own, but make them effectively an irrelevant competitor. And, and, um, you know, I didn't necessarily have a good answer for, for that kind of, uh, defense against centralization, um, or kind of somewhat hostile takeover kind of threat. Um, but it sounds like, you know, a reputation weighted influence like this would, would certainly diminish the possibility of that. Yes, it definitely does diminish the possibility of that. Um, I, I would think that in, in the particular case that you mentioned, um, a centralized finance company would have to feel, feel pretty threatened by the decentralized version of it to sort of try and do that hostile takeover. And they would also have to have a relatively poor understanding of the nature of decentralized and open source software because any of the people who, so number one, they'd be burning a lot of money because they'd be trying to hoover up all the token supply. We should be pushing the price up, presumably, because the, the liquid supply in the market would be decreasing with all the demand. So it'd be quite hard to acquire it all. Um, and then they would be doing so only in order to set those tokens up in flames. Um, so they'd be losing all the money that they'd invested in doing that, you would assume. Mm-hmm. And at any point, the community who's behind it could just fork the code and redeploy it to the exclusion of of the finance company that that, that bought it nefariously. Yeah, I imagine that um, you know, even if nobody, even if relatively few community members are voting as well, that would certainly get everybody up in arms and would uh, disturb the beehive, so, so to speak. Yeah. I imagine. Well, that's um, actually one of the other real challenges of of token-weighted governance is that the reality is that only a handful of people actively participate in governance. So despite my saying all those things just now, it could, it would probably be quite easy for uh, such a company to acquire a position that enabled them to, to move things in their favor sufficiently. Sure. Yeah. To have, yeah. To have out overweighted, influence um, yeah. from the initial people who are aligned with the intent and philosophies that it was previously uh, dictated under. Right. Because it's, it's usually just a, even sometimes a fraction of a percent of the token holdings actually participate in governance. Sure. And so, so that's another interesting thing about reputation weighted governance is that it, it inherently biases towards the people who are most active and engaged. Mm-hmm. So, even though you probably don't get any more people participating, at least the numbers look better <laughs> in terms sure. of the amount of reputation that's participating. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it, um, I think that 
the, the builders, you know, are the ones that are going to be getting paid. So, you know, they should be able to um, have that, that recognized. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about the, the kind of the, the purpose of, of this whole redefined life podcast, which yeah. is um, illuminating the path for non-devs to get involved and, and to get paid working for crypto projects, mm-hmm. um, whether that's full-time or part-time. And um, just out of curiosity, so what, what's your experience been um, with looking for, for non-dev help? It's been very challenging. Um, I would say that it's one of the most difficult things that I have to do um, in my role um, because the, there's surprisingly little talent out there that's at a at the kind of caliber that we'd want to be able to hire and that also has relevant experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tricky. I guess what kind of positions are you specifically looking for uh, to, to fill and um, what are some of the key qualities that you're looking for in a candidate for those positions? Okay, so we're just about to start a hiring process for several roles. One is developer relations, which is is a technical role in a way, but it's also has a significant non-technical component. Um, I think that role is often filled by by people who are not necessarily devs themselves, but who are technically literate. Um, and then we're looking for a CMO, so chief marketing officer. Uh, we're looking for somebody who's going to be a communications lead. Um, so that means really representing and being the voice of, of Colony in all our written forms. Um, and we're looking for uh, somebody to lead BizDev. So um, getting out there, understanding our customers uh, or, or our users and um, onboarding them. And um, we're also looking for a community person. I hesitate to say a community manager because that seems like it's a a fairly low, um, a fairly lowly position, which is not really what I mean. And I think that a, a lot of us in the crypto space find that there's an, an, an inadequacy for uh, terminology for, for for that particular role, because we're really looking for somebody who will prove to be a real catalyst to the community, somebody who is um, able to be inspiring and knowledgeable and engaging, and uh, yeah, we kind of want all of those from every role, really, but. It's uh, it's particularly important for that when you've got to be a sort of magnetic personality as well as um, as well as capable of understanding and articulating effectively the technology uh, to, to to people such that it, it excites them and, and wants them to participate. So yeah, it sounds like there's there's quite a few opportunities at Colony um, right now. Right. So so I guess what when you're let's start with just sort of like general. Um, general traits or, or things that you're looking for uh, for any of these non-dev roles? Yeah, sure. So I think that there's a few um, traits that are, are really important and which 
it can be I, I don't know how how easy it is to sort of subjectively identify these in yourself in a sort of reasonably uh, accurate way um, but yeah there's there's a few things that I, I certain, certainly think of and look for in people so one is to do with agreeableness um, and you would sort of naively think that oh yeah of course you want people to be agreeable um, but that's not actually what we mean or what I mean when looking for people um, I actually don't really want people to be agreeable I, I think it's really important that people are um, able to have a measure of force about them and they're willing to disagree when it's appropriate to disagree because it's a, a very dangerous situation in a team where everybody is just very keen for everybody to get along and everything be nice and and, and non-confrontational. It's, um, it's actually very important that people will flag things that they are dissatisfied with and, and I think that's how we... Um, are able to collectively strive for improvement. Um, the other is to do with openness. If people are very, I think that you probably don't get into crypto without having a, a certain measure of openness because the nature of it being new and it means that you have um, decided to onboard yourself to, to a completely new way of thinking and a new technology and had to do a lot of learning. But um, yeah, I think that that's a, a, an important thing to have balance around um, because on the one hand, you need to, uh, particularly for, for many of the roles that we're looking for, like, like marketing, um, there are a lot of tried and tested paths that really work and you have to be willing to understand and know what those are and be able to deliver upon them, Um whilst at the same time being open to new opportunities, new experiences, and new approaches. Um, and then I think that the final one probably that I'd want to touch on, which I think is particularly important in um, a DAO, um, but, uh, which are really uh, organizational forms that are only just emerging now, but I think it's equally important in um, remote teams, distributed teams, is conscientiousness. So that is just such an incredible, I would say that that's the most important thing that we'd be looking for is people who are just very diligent, very conscientious, very self-motivated, organized, driven. And um, I think it's encapsulated by really the, the one coverall rule that we have at, at Colony, which is don't screw over your teammates. As long as, as long as you don't do that, everything else is going to be cool. And that captures so much. It means that you're communicating effectively with people such that they're not let down or, um, yeah, it, it just covers a lot. Um, so I would just leave it at those three. I could go on, but I, I won't. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, just hearing that all verbalized um, will really help people, one, to self-identify as, you know, having those qualities um, and then being able to communicate uh, in you know their discussions with whoever they reach out to to um, you know be able to effectively convey convey that they have those skills and and right. have examples in hand of of ways that they could bring that to the team. Um, so I do think that that's very helpful to hear. Are you guys limited to a certain time zone, or are you looking at a global talent pool? No, we we look at 
the talent globally, really. I think practically because of the distribution of the team and the fact that we do have some synchronous meetings, it makes it quite difficult for people who are um, in Australia or um, primarily or, or um, East Asia just because the timelines don't really sync up. So so we, we find that a lot of people actually who are in those time zones end up becoming sort of nocturnal in order to work with projects that are where the majority of people are in um, the US and Europe is, is the case with, with Colony. Um, but but in principle, there is there is no geographic res- restrictions. Okay, so your your current uh, talent pool is is primarily in Europe and America. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And so, let's say that that there's somebody who uh, gets really fired up and excited when they when they learn about Colony and you know dig into it and and. Um, you know, their heart gets racing a little bit more than mm-hmm. than you know the, the typical uh, introduction to to new projects they that they discover and and they're really excited, but they've they haven't worked in crypto before, mm-hmm. and, but you know they've been a let's say a, a top performer at their non crypto job, and they're looking to figure out a way to to fit themselves into crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are your tips for how they should um, maybe rethink things or or think about transferable skills? Right. So, I think the first thing is that um, it's probably I'd be willing to be challenged on this. Certainly, it's it's probably quite difficult if you don't understand anything at all about crypto, uh, about blockchain technology, about decentralization, about any of these principles. I think if all of this is a, is a completely new idea to you, then it's there's so many underlying assumptions about your worldview that you have to challenge that um, it would be very difficult for, for somebody to, to get onboarded because there's, there's like any number of aha moments that you need to go through before it starts to make sense, especially something that is as kind of deep down the crypto rabbit hole as, as DAOs are. Um, so I think you need to have understood the, the value proposition of decentralized money and then decentralized finance. And then perhaps you get to to something like Colony sometime after that. Um, however, I think that if you are somebody who is just essentially a hobbyist, I mean, really everybody that I know of was a hobbyist in crypto before they got their first role in crypto. So I, I think that that sort of paying your dues just by by actually being quite passionate about the technology to begin with is is how it tends to work. I think that's less true actually of developers. I think developers can just stroll into it, um, especially if they're doing things like front end. Um, But I think any non-technical role, you have to have that baseline passion understanding that comes from just paying attention. Then after that, I, I don't think I don't think um, 
I don't think many crypto projects really care about much else. I think they all know that it's very hard to find people who have got, you know, two years high level experience at another crypto project because I mean the space as a whole hasn't been going for that long. And and what's more actually is that it's very, very hard to hire people who've been around in crypto for more than a few years because of the way the markets have gone up. Most of those people are independently wealthy now. So so it's very, very hard to get hold of people who have been around for a long time without implying that they've made some terrible decision at some point along the way. <laughs> yeah, overconfidence from yeah, leverage or whatever it is. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Expanding their lifestyle. Um, yeah. So so the bottom line, it sounds like, you know, obviously uh, somebody who heard about crypto last week may not have the context to actually excel at one of these non-dev roles. However, yeah. if somebody's been in the space for a little while, has done their research, um, understands the basics of not necessarily the technical side of the tech, however, the implications of the tech and the mm -hmm. principles behind the reasoning of why the tech is set up the way it is um, and the value propositions that go along with that, then uh, then they shouldn't be intimidated by throwing their name in the, in the hat to be considered for one of these roles. That That's accurate? absolutely, absolutely correct. I think that the um, overtly technical nature of a lot of the communication that has gone around in this space is, is has done a disservice to it in, in a way because it, it is quite intimidating. Uh, you think that everybody must be a developer, and, and I'm certainly not. I uh, realized pretty early on that I was never going to be able to um, commit enough time or enough effort to be sufficiently technically competent with everything else that I need to do as, as a founder or as a non-technical founder. So, um, yeah, I've still never written so much as Hello World in, <laughs> in, in any programming language. Huh, and that, that's interesting, too, because um, so, yeah, I think we'll, we'll come back to to talking more about these these positions, but I want to just pull on this thread a little bit here. So when you sure. first uh, started Colony, mm -hmm. you, you just said that you're you're not a developer. Um, mm -hmm. What was your what was that first little bit of decision making like for you when you prior to starting Colony? Were you involved with any other projects? I I was um, I was a jeweler actually before starting Colony. I, I did computer aided design and 3D printed, 3D, excuse me, 3D printing um, in the jewelry industry, and I had um, a small ultra high end fine jewelry brand. And we used to make really fancy things for really fancy people. And I'd be swanning all over the world selling my um, gaudy baubles to them. <laughs> and um, yeah, at some point, I, I just had a client that wanted me to help her do something like that, and I. I Every fiber of my being said, hard no, I'm out. Um, but at the same time, this was a very wealthy person and I couldn't really say no. So it inspired me to go and figure out how I could exit the life that I realized that I, I didn't enjoy and didn't want to be locked into forever. Um, and, and really Colony was the consequence of that because I, I was trying to figure out what the problems were that made me not want to, to do it. Um, and a big part of it was that we were a distributed team 
and it was hard to coordinate everybody because people's incentives weren't aligned. Everybody was pushing for local maximums, local optimums. You know, they're trying to um, basically make the most profit they can out of every deal, which would um, have the consequence of making everything more expensive. Whereas if you're in a vertically integrated company, um, people's incentives are more aligned because they're all pushing for you know minimizing their margin of production in order to maximize the margin of profit or be able to sell the goods at a, at a reasonable price. So, um, yeah, kind of all of that conspired to make me design colony. I realized that the problem that I was facing was, was not a unique one and, um, that it would likely become more and more prevalent as I could see more people were working remotely and by the internet and, Freelancing was increasing at a increasing very rapidly, and that I, I, I was just about getting interested in Bitcoin um, at that point, which was in two thousand and thirteen, and um, I saw that well, if you can have like social media and you can have digital value, then why can't you have digital companies? All companies are are a bunch of rules about how uh, resources get allocated and and who gets to allocate them and all of this stuff is the perfect kind of thing that blockchains can do. So it was, it was all just a, a pursuit of a, a solving my own problem and just being generally intellectually curious and, and able to connect the dots. Yeah. So you, so you connected the dots and saw what, what should be built. Um, how did you go about, uh, you know, without the developer background? Um, I imagine it was, a bit of a hurdle to see how that vision could be realized. Did you bring on a, like a technical co-founder or anything like that? Um, eventually. Yeah. I mean, I tried many times, but, um, I didn't really understand. I didn't understand even what coding was to begin with. I wasn't sure whether there was a difference between developing and coding and programming. Um, and when you're really deeply ignorant about that kind of thing, you also, well, at least I am <laughs> quite embarrassed about revealing that ignorance, and uh, or, or at least I was. I'm, I'm far less embarrassed about it now. I think it's actually great to demonstrate your ignorance because then it gets washed away from you much more quickly than it otherwise might. Um, but yeah, so so I just had to gradually discover and learn so much. Uh, but that was, I think a particularly acute version of this challenge because I was trying to be the founder. So I was having to learn absolutely everything from the ground up uh, in order to be able to found it. And um, consequently kind of went through maybe about three or four different um, groups of potential co-founders or teams, everything from sort of outsourcing to, um, dev shops to groups of people who were completely focused on technologies that were completely irrelevant, but which I didn't understand why. <laughs> and um, uh, in, in order to eventually have sort of leveled my own understanding up sufficiently that I could identify what the, the right kinds of skills were. And that was just a long and arduous process of having conversations and figuring it out. Um, I don't know that there's a particular shortcut to go from total 
abject ignorance to uh, slightly less ignorance. Sure. Well, um, I imagine that that story of, of yeah, uh, somebody who has that founder's vision um, to see what the finish line may or may not look like, but, but, you know, at the level of their understanding at the time of founding, you know, what it appears to, what appears to be the target, um, you know, had they known just how much, you know, uh, work would go into it or what they didn't know, then, you know, they may never, never have even started. So it seems like, right. um, but that is the, that is the hero's journey of the founders to figure all that out and, and keep pushing and until it, until it clicks. So. Yeah. And I think had that, had my ignorance not been lifted ever so gradually over years, I, I, there's no way I could have had the, had the nerve to take it on sure. because, uh, yes, such an enormous, such an <laughs> enormous thing to overcome. Yeah. But, um, yeah, such, such is the nature of, such is the, is the nature of the beast. And I think it's, it's, it's much less acute if you are, you know, you're, you're a marketing person and, you know, you've, been doing good marketing work at some unrelated field you you know the basics you know your craft and then you're interested in a in a new field i think it's it's much easier to transition there than to sort of be completely ignorant and try and start a project well sure yeah there's there's certainly a, a difference in in risk for a founder versus somebody who's going to take transferable skills and apply them to a new field. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think one of the things that you said there that I just want to reiterate, cause I think that this is important and is, is certainly something that I face every time I hit record is, um, you know, not being afraid to ask questions that, that may reveal some level of ignorance there and, yeah. and having that be the fast way to learn. Um, totally. I think that, you know, some of the people, some of the listeners that I've spoken to one-on-one, -on -one, um, have had questions about the advice of, you know, getting involved in the discord and, and asking those questions. Um, and I think that, you know, for, for some people that may be just not feeling like they are at a level where they can ask questions that are going to be, um, you know, have a certain level of insight or, or background knowledge, you know, associated with them. And so, um, but I think that for everyone's sake, asking those questions in public forums where others can, can hear the answers as well is only going to benefit the community and will will for the individual asking the question is only going to get them to the answer faster totally and as as somebody hiring people i i'm so much happier to hear people say that they don't know something than try to pretend that they do know something or try and try to gloss over ignorance being willing to admit that you don't understand things and and also being willing to not rest until you do understand it um, is just so key. You've got to be open and honest about these things. Otherwise, you can never really hope to, to get to that place. So I guess the one other question I had for you, because we are coming up kind of on uh, close to time here, is um, you know, DAOs in general can be one of those things that are a paradigm shift. Um, and I've heard one person describe it as um, freelancing with equity. Have you heard of any other good ways for people to get their head wrapped around what working for a DAO would be like, or to ease some of the fears that they have about the fact that it, it is just such a different system? Yeah. So another good um, way of framing it 
that I had heard recently was it's a it's like a subreddit with a bank account, which I thought was quite neat. Mm. <laughs> um, but I suppose I, I think that free the freelancing um, angle is the one that I most naturally gravitate to because I actually think that freelancers are the perfect people to be participating in DAOs because to be a freelancer you you are kind of living on your wits. It's a fairly precarious position to be in, um, going from one client to the next. And you have to be pretty well organized and pretty diligent and able to manage your time effectively. Um, and also be kind of multifaceted as you obviously have to deal with all the sort of financial components of running your freelancing business as well. Um, and so I think that that is going to transition very well to people working for DAOs. And I think that the opportunity that that provides is, is a really compelling one as a freelancer, uh, particularly in the context of Colony. Um, and it's because as a freelancer, you're really just doing work for clients. You have got a client or a series of clients or perhaps many clients at the same time. And they are asking you to do things for them and you will be working with them and responding to their critique constantly and usually watering down um, the way you think it should be. And usually you know best because that's your direct experience. It's your expertise, but the client usually wants something different and usually it's something that's worse. Um, so it can be a kind of depressing existence in a way. Um, and if you're in a DAO, you are both the client and the and the um, and the freelancer because you are to to some extent you are working on something that you own and that you have um, influence over as in you, you get to define what it is because you are presumably the one that's been specking it out. So I think that that's a really compelling opportunity for people to not only earn in just the same way that they were earning before, um, albeit that the means of compensation is cryptocurrencies, um, and also to exercise your agency. So to be able to actually do things that you really want to be doing and you are you feel interested in and passionate about rather than just the clients that happen to come to you um and so i think that's that's very exciting another thing i just wanted to touch on there from the perspective of colony specifically is a feature that i built into it um i should say we built into it um as a result of my specific experience as a freelancer, which I was for at least a decade, um, which is that um, it's a very precarious existence. You are tied to the hours you can earn. And unlike if you are, you have em employment at a company, um, there's no sick pay or anything like that. You know, you, you, you stop being able to work, particularly if it's you stop being able to work for an extended period of time, and it's tough. You know, you're on your own. If you've got no support around you, you're in trouble. Um, 
in Colony, we have got a feature called rewards, which was designed with this principle in or this this issue in mind, which is that an organization can choose to set aside a proportion of its revenue to be dispersed between the members of that organization. And the amount that you can claim is a function of how much of the organization you own in terms of tokens and how much reputation you have. So if you've been actively working within an organization for some time and you have a good reputation there, um, if you suddenly stop being able to work for that organization um, for some medical reason, let's say, you will continue to be able to claim um, a share of this rewards pot on an ongoing basis until such time as your reputation decays away. So is there to provide a sort of um, safety net to, to, to freelancers who um, wouldn't otherwise have one? And that's, yeah, I, I think that that will prove to be very valuable to a lot of people. Absolutely. That's a really cool feature. Um, yeah, as, as somebody with a family and, um, you know, mortgage payment and, and, and the like, uh, it, it sometimes does feel intimidating to uh, contemplate that change in lifestyle from employee to uh, more of a freestyle, uh, freelance uh, situation there. And so, yeah. um, yeah, features like that would certainly, I think, increase the talent pool that would be able to, um, come in and, and frankly, be able to focus on the work that they're doing because they wouldn't have those concerns in the back of their mind that, you know, the, the day something, you know, heaven forbid happens that, you know, mm. they, their family would be in, in jeopardy. So, um, right. yeah, that's, that's really cool. I think DAOs also really give you the opportunity to um, just start. I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it doesn't entail um, giving up your day job in order to go and do it, right? You should be able to find things that you could contribute to, contribute to them and start earning your way in, uh, sort of learning as you go and uh, as you earn, presumably as well. Uh, and then only once you've got to a point where you can, you feel comfortable with it. Would you let go of of um, traditional employment? I would. I would think that that would be a, a gradual process for most people. That does. That's a really good point as well. Um, you know, so so much of the the thread through all of these conversations that I've had is the importance of gaining context. And I think with some of these things, because they are such a a mental shift from the traditional ways of thinking or the ways that we've you know just been conditioned to understand things that um there's no better way to get context than by being involved and and exactly. you know experiencing it so yeah excellent point all right well we are now a little bit past time but um anything else that you'd like to to add before we sign off um if anybody uh, would like to learn more about colony i'd love to invite everybody to come and join our discord community which is at uh, clny.io forward slash discord or to follow us on twitter at join colony excellent yeah those those links will be in the show notes so um easy for people to find and um, great yeah so from this conversation and from some of the background research colony is doing really cool things so i definitely encourage everybody to to do more research into um yeah the that that project and um if you were inspired by one of these open positions and, and think you'd be a good fit based on on what Jack said here. Um, 
are, are you the person that they should get a hold of or should they yeah, take a different avenue? Totally. Jump into the Discord and uh, find me uh, and, and, and just drop me a message. I'm, I'm very easy to find there. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking this time today to have this conversation. I think it's going to be hugely beneficial to everybody who listens. Um, great. And I'd just like to say, I think it's great that you're doing this because I think you've, you've really identified uh, an acute problem in, in Web3. And um, I think it's great that you're trying to tackle it. Thank you.